We have finished the seven letters to the seven churches. That was very good. We're moving on now. Chapter 4 and chapter 5 introduce a new topic. We're we're looking at a new area, and I want to move into chapter 4 and 5 by moving backwards into chapter 3. That makes any sense. It'll make sense in a minute, maybe. Makes sense to me? That's all that matters. So we're going to go back to chapter 2 and chapter 3, and I want to remind you of, of a couple things. Uh, Revelation chapter 2.9 is said to one of the churches, I know your afflictions and your poverty. In 2.13 it says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Revelation 3.9, the city is referred to the synagogue of Satan. And in Revelation 2.3, which should be in your notes, it says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. And that was specifically written to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesus was part of seven churches that made up the churches of Asia Minor. This is a region. And this region, everything that happened to one in some way or another was happening to another. They were a close-knit group of churches. They were all probably overseen by the Apostle John. That was their connection. But Ephesus was the kind of the central hub of everything that went on in Asia Minor. Ephesus, in your notes, is where Pastor John served for nearly 20 years. And I call him Pastor John because he was their pastor. He oversaw these churches. He probably traveled from church to church. His, his home base was in Ephesus, though. This is where he spent the most of his time. Ephesus was nature's crossroad for trade and travel through the ancient world. So back then, you put your road where the land allowed you to put the road. And you traveled through the passes, and you'd sometimes trade routes would cross each other, and that was a great place for a city. Well, Ephesus was where nature determined the city would be, so it was a, a natural crossroads. Number two in your notes, Ephesus became the cultural and economic mecca of the Roman Empire in Asia. So it was a natural place, but it became the place. In the United States, if you want to know what the fashions are or what the latest things are, who's doing what that may or may not be important but we're all supposed to know about, you're probably thinking about Los Angeles, perhaps Hollywood, or you're thinking about New York. These are the, these are the meccas of our cultural and economic situations here in America. Well, Ephesus was the New York of Asia Minor in the Roman Empire. We have Nashville in the middle of our country. That might fit with what, what Ephesus was to the Roman Empire. But, you know, there's, there's, there's no show about, hey, what's the latest cool thing happening in Minneapolis? Or, um, you know, Baker, Montana, or something like that. In Calf Lamb, it's not going to make the news about our latest fad or our latest clothing thing we do. you got to be in one of these centers. And that's how Ephesus was. So I want you to think of of New York, Los Angeles, maybe Nashville, Tennessee. That's the, the standing they had in the empire, particularly in that area. And then Emperor Domitian ruled over the Roman Empire and spent a lot of time in Ephesus. So we have not mentioned Domitian yet. He was an emperor in Rome. And as number four says, Domitian took the Roman Empire to its highest levels of emperor worship. 
So at some point before Domitian, the idea got out that, yeah, you know what, we're so powerful and we're so strong and we're so influential that our leader might be a god. And that thought got thrown out there and the leaders thought that was a great thought. But Domitian, he fully embraced the idea. And, and, and I'm going to tell you some things about Domitian, but, but he literally embraced the fact that as the Roman emperor, he himself was a god. And we'll get to that in a minute. Because of Ephesus being a cultural crossroads and an economic crossroads and being one of Domitian's favorite places to be, the believers in Ephesus had some things they had to deal with. So here's a couple of obstacles. Number one, all visitors were required to take a ritual bath upon entering the magnesium gate to be claimed before the Greek and Roman gods. So if you went into Ephesus and you went through the magnesium gate, which, by the way, was the only way in, officially, the roads came there, but the seaports came there, you went into Ephesus through this gate, you were required to take a ritual bath. Now, that's not the worst thing ever. You could walk through and say, well, I smell today, I'll go ahead and take a bath. Or they could look at you and say, you smell, you need a bath. But this bath was special in the fact that it was an act of worship. So in order to walk among their gods, you needed to be clean, or you might say you need to be unoffensive. You need to present yourself in a way that you're not going to upset them. They're not going to curl their nose at you. And so they would say you needed to be clean and then make you take a bath. And, and I don't know exactly how it worked. I don't know if they checked you on the way in and out. I don't know what. But they knew if you took a bath or not. And it was required. And so if you were a Christian and you did not want to participate in the worship of a false god or a foreign god, you had a problem. Now, you could probably rationalize here and there to, to kind of get around that one, or you could maybe make up some things, but in reality, you took part in the worship of a foreign god in order to get into the city. Number two in your notes, as you entered the Agora, you would be required to burn incense to Caesar as God, acknowledging before men that Caesar was God. You didn't just take a bath, you had to burn incense. And it, it says there in your notes it was a 100-square-meter market. Well, I, I said that wrong. It wasn't 100 square meters. It wasn't 10 by 10. It was 100 by 100 by 100 by 100. So 100 meters in every direction. Inside this, this area, there was a reflective pool. There was two stadiums. There was the Library of Ephesus. It was, the whole thing was surrounded by columns and two sides were built two stories, and that's where all the shops were. So this was the, the, city, the, the city courtyard. It was where the mall was, where the performing arts theater was. It was the library was. This is where you had to go if you wanted to find things you were going to buy or if you wanted to sell things you needed to sell. This was the prime location for all business that took place in Ephesus. So if you're going to go into this prime real estate for all business and all cultural things, you had to take a ritual bath, and you had to burn incense, and you had to do it for the gods, and you had to do it to the gods. So if you're a Christian, you had a problem, because you're not allowed to worship other gods. 
You're not allowed to burn incense to other gods. You're not allowed to say Caesar is God. So these guys had a problem. They were not welcome at the main business site of the city. So they had to, they had to go other places and do other things. Number three in your notes, after bathing and burning incense, you would receive an ink stain marking you as eligible to buy, sell, and travel freely in Ephesus. So you would get a mark. All right? So A, the Jewish, the Jews by tradition called anyone who demanded self-worship a beast. So they would have called Domitian a beast. They would have called any emperor that demanded you worship him a beast. That was their term. We still use it today. Okay, we still use it today, and we're going to read about it in Revelation. And then the ink stain would have been called the mark of the beast. That's sounding a little familiar, isn't it? So if anyone went through the ceremony, they took their bath, they burned their incense, they would have been given an ink stain somewhere on their body, visible to everybody, and without the ink stain, they could not buy or sell, and they were certainly not welcome. So maybe even going to the library or attending an event would have been an issue because they wouldn't have done those things. So as a Christian, you had, you had a lot of issues. Now this is the first time we hear the words mark of the beast, and so I went forward a little bit. I looked at Revelation 13, verses 11 through 18. You can read that on your own. It talks about the mark of the beast. And it says it's on your right hand or on your forehead. And you can't buy or sell without the mark. And it said the mark will be the name of the beast or its number, which is 666. So a historical reference is the ink stain, whatever it looked like, that went on anyone who wanted to buy or sell or do business in Ephesus. And then we have the prophetic reference of the mark of the beast, which is either his name or his number on your right hand or forehead. So we have reference here. We have something of the future that's referenced to something of the present. So when these people in chapter 13 read the mark of the beast, they would immediately refer back to this mark and say, oh, I know what you're talking about, the mark given to someone who's worshiping the false god. So that's just a little extra bonus, not really in our text today, but I thought it was really interesting. So they had this problem with being in Ephesus. They had a problem just living in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus dealt with a lot. The next problem they had was that the emperor Domitian, the Roman emperor, absolutely loved to hang out in Ephesus. And he was one of Satan's first antichrists. Now, there's a concept for you. I said first Antichrist. We all know about the beast and the Antichrist. We're, we're looking forward to the future, not in anticipation like how cool will it be, but like, wow, this is going to happen, where someone will step forward and they will literally say to the inhabitants of the earth, hey, guess what? I'm God. And the inhabitants of the earth, because the rapture will have taken place, are going to say, wow, that's cool. So this person says, I am God. The people say, that's cool. There's a beast and there's an antichrist. They represent Satan. That's going to happen one day. Here's something to think about. Satan has no idea when Christ is going to return. He has no idea when the rapture is going to take place. Therefore, from the beginning, Satan has had to have his guy ready to serve as the antichrist. So I believe, looking back, 
But I can confidently say that Domitian was the Antichrist that Satan had propped up to fill the role had Christ returned during that time. Now, of course, he didn't, so Domitian was replaced. We don't know who's, who's on task. We don't know who's being prepared. We don't know who it's going to be. We don't even know when it's going to be. But Satan has this planned, and he's ready for it, and Domitian was the guy. Let me tell you about Domitian. This is in my notes, not in yours, so just listen. Just imagine, if you will. Domitian gave himself the name Dominos Ideos, which means our Lord and our God. So Domitian, a man who was emperor of Rome, gave himself the name which you called him, and he called himself our Lord and our God. He declared himself to be the God of the universe, not just the Romans, but the universe. He demanded that his wife call him my Lord and my God. He is fully delusional at this point. No man alive looks to his wife and says, you will call me your Lord and, my, and your God. He, he has bought into this 110%. Because he said to his wife, you will call me my Lord and my God. He called his palace the holy place. He called his throne the seat of the Most High God. He started his edicts and his correspondence with the phrase, the Lord our God commands. He required by law that any statue made of him be of solid gold. He wiped out the, the Nazimones, or the Nazimones, I'm not sure how you say it. They were a group of Christians in the Roman era. He wiped them out because he didn't like them. Why didn't he like them? Because they had different ideas about who was our Lord and our God, the, the God of the universe and all these things. So he just wiped them out. He's like, I don't want to deal with you, and he killed them all. He used fear, violence, and execution to, to reign in absolute power. He hosted Olympic Games in his own honor. He carried a scroll with him, which he pronounced symbolized his power to determine human history. Which means that what he looked at was, if I write it down, it will be, and you can speak of it as if it has already happened. So what I say goes... It's as if it already happened. You can write it down like that. He called it, he was a history maker. He would say, only I am worthy to open the scroll and break its seal. He carried the scroll, and only he was worthy to look inside it and to write things on it. He had priests that traveled with him to lead the crowds in worship. They would instruct the people on what to do, okay? And if they didn't do it, they'd be in trouble, when Domitian entered the games, the people were required to shout, Great are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive honor and power and glory. Worthy are you, Lord of the... Worthy are you of the earth to inherit the kingdom. That's what they'd say to him. He had poets employed to write songs about him. He built a 20-foot tall statue of himself on a platform on the side of the hill as you entered Ephesus... And he had all the other gods, their little pictures or symbols, carved into the base to make the statement he was God above all other gods. Domitian was the first emperor to see Christianity as a threat to his reign, and he started attacking and killing Christians in Ephesus. He had a 24-member choir that traveled with him and sang the words, Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and praise. 
The crowd would then shout, as instructed, King of kings and Lord of lords, God of all humankind, Savior of the earth. Then whenever he stopped, the crowd was required to bow down. And if you did not participate, you were either crucified along the main streets or fed to the dogs. You think this guy had an ego? He truly embraced that he was God. And did you hear things that sound like God? Did you hear him require things to be said of him that should only be said of the true God? This is blasphemy to the utmost. Domitian is the one who exiled John to the island of Patmos after John did not die from being boiled in oil. So he tried to kill John. God protected him, so he sent him off to Patmos. So that's who Domitian is. That's where Ephesus was. That's what they did. That's who Domitian was. That's what he did. Domitian spent a lot of time in Ephesus. If you were a Christian in Ephesus, you knew all this very, very well. And John wrote a letter inspired by the Holy Spirit to those people, and this is what he said. Follow along or close your eyes and just imagine, because this is good, so just do, the, do what works for you. But I'm going to read chapter 4 and chapter 5 in their entirety, and I want you to compare what God says and what God does to what Domitian said and what Domitian did. So John says, After I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby. A rainbow shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Think of these guys as kings, on thrones, wearing crowns. Think of 24 kings surrounding the throne of God. From the throne were flashes of lightning, rumblings and peelings of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These were the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And you might say, wow, God's copying Domitian. The answer is no, he was not. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That's a quote from Isaiah that was written long before Domitian ever walked on the earth. Holy, 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 that's a way of saying God is holy. He is so holy, he is the most holy. Every time you add a holy, that emphasizes the word. So he's not only holy, he's the most holy. He's holier than anyone else. So if they heard Domitian say things about himself, now they're hearing the four living creatures talk about God, and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
He's always been here and he always will be here. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, not 24 singers, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive honor, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw at the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Not a scroll to be written on, but a scroll written on already front and back. Not sealed with one seal, but with seven seals. Verse 2, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it, certainly not Domitian. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders, one of the kings wearing a crown sitting on a throne one of the elders said to me do not weep see the lion of the tribe of judah the root of david has triumphed that's jesus he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals then i saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain remember jesus was the sacrificial lamb he was the the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world Okay. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. At the center of the throne. He didn't stand next to God. He was God. The lamb who looked as if he was slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into, the, into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. They worship voluntarily. They worship instinctfully. They worship because they can't help but worship, not because they're threatened. Not because someone's making them do it. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sing a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests and to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. Not the people who happened to be there who were forced to worship, but as many angels as the eye can see surrounding this, this throne room of God and, and the elders and the living creatures. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, verse 12. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard... Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them. Before we read what they said, think about what that means. 
I heard every creature. It doesn't say every person. It says every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea. Remember back in Genesis when God said, you guys are in charge. I want you to manage the birds of the air, the flocks, the sea creatures, the cattle, and all the animals. I happen to think that they had communication and that they could literally manage them. It was, it was instruct them, care for them, tell them what to do. And here we have every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and all that is in them saying. We have these creatures speaking. And what do they say? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. I can't even imagine. I can imagine angels. I can imagine all the angels in a choir singing. I can imagine 24 elders and I can imagine four living creatures as weird as they may look. I can imagine a throne. I can imagine the rainbow around it. I can imagine all the stuff that's been described. I cannot imagine what birds sound like when they proclaim the glory of God. Or cattle. Or elephants. Or fish. Or starfish. Or ants. I cannot imagine what they sound like. But when God commands them to speak and they speak, it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be outstanding and these people were just told it's going to happen, and it went from what they can imagine to beyond that to what they cannot imagine. And at the end of all that, verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell and worshipped. So, they knew firsthand what Domitian said and what Domitian did, and now they're seeing and hearing a first-person account of God's throne room. So back to your notes, God's message to believers living in Ephesus. Number one, Domitian claimed to be God, but God proved it by revealing his heavenly and eternal throne room to John. Domitian claimed that God proved it. Number two, Domitian had 24-member choir or 24-member worship team singing his praises, but God had 24 elders wearing crowns, sitting on thrones worshiping him, not to mention four living creatures, thunder and lightning, an angelic choir, and a worldwide group of backup singers who all worshiped him with enthusiasm and without coercion. Number three, Domitian was the one and only worthy to open his scrolls and break his royal seal, but Jesus was worthy to open God Almighty's scroll and open its divine seals. Number four, Domitian claimed to control the future, but God actually does control the future and showed the future to John as each of the seven seals were broken. Number five, Domitian needed a 27-foot statue so that he would be remembered after his death. But God needs no such monument to be remembered after his death because Jesus rose from the dead and is alive. And the Holy Spirit lives within every believer. God is not dead, so he needs no memorial. 
Number six, Domitian was worshipped out of fear of torture and death if they did not. Christians worship God as a free will choice that God allows them to make on a daily basis. Number seven, Domitian killed those who opposed him. God, through Jesus Christ, died himself so that those who oppose him have a chance to be reconciled and saved. Number eight, Domitian could not kill John, but he tried to silence him in exile. But God used John while in Domitian's exile to write a book of prophecy and and a call to salvation that has never been silenced or disregarded. So the big idea for Ephesus, and I've said this before, I've actually preached this sermon before, I love this sermon. What, what God said to Ephesus in these two chapters, as they read this and all the other Christians around read this because they knew what was going on, when they read this, this is what they heard. Domitian is a child playing in a sandbox when compared to the God who rules the universe and with Jesus who came to this earth and died so that our sins could be forgiven. In other words, the greatest humans of all time are a joke when compared to God. Domitian walked around killing people and threatening people and demanded that he was worshipped. And God said to the people who watch this happen all the time, Hey, you know what? That Domitian guy, he's a child and a joke compared to me. You want to be on my team. You want to be on my side. You want my protection. You want my blessings. Don't worry about him. Don't worry about his shopping center. Don't worry about his stadium. Don't worry about his statue. Don't worry about his musicians. Don't worry about his scroll. It's just a bunch of toys in a toy box. I've got the real thing. Here's a glimpse of it. Just going to show you a little part. This is the real thing. Satan will try to mimic the real thing to confuse us and draw us away from God. God is the real thing, and when we see it, it's so much more than what Satan can produce. That was the message to those Christians. The result of that message was the spiritual overthrow of false gods in Ephesus. Within 40 years of John writing the book of Revelation, 90% of Ephesus was considered to be Christian. It was no longer Rome's cultural mecca, and pagan worship no longer was a viable business strategy. Domitian's reign came to an end in 96 A.D., when he was assassinated by court officials. After his death, Domitian's memory was, quote-unquote, condemned to oblivion by the Roman Senate. In other words, they saw him as a crazy nut. They saw him as going too far. They saw him as an embarrassment, so they killed him. And when he was dead, they did everything they could to erase the name of Domitian from memory. They tore down his statue. You can Google it, look it up online. There's a head and one arm left. That's all that's left of his 27-foot statue. He was, he was disregarded. So Domitian, who was all that, is now none of that. God is still on his throne. God is still forgiving sin. 
God is still in the business of showing himself to us. Here's our application. God gave the readers of this passage hope and fortitude in what they saw coming. We should look to the same future and come to the same resolve. Whoever is in charge nowadays, they're just kids in a sandbox. Our president and our past presidents and our future presidents, kids in a sandbox. Putin and every previous leader of Russia, every future leader of Russia, kids in a sandbox. The Pope, every past Pope, every future Pope, kids in a sandbox. Every governor that walks in Washington, Oregon, California, New York, and every state in between, kids in a sandbox. They have nothing in comparison to God, no matter what they say, no matter what they do. We should look to the actual throne room of God as our future to give us the resolve we need to live correctly today. Number two, whatever and whoever stands against you because of your faith is weak, empathetic, in comparison to the awesome power, holiness, and sovereignty of God. We need to pick teams. We're going to pick the winning team with God or the weak, pathetic, losing team with whoever their captain is. Number three, God is the only hero who will still be on his throne when the earth ceases to exist. So number four, our job right now is to stop looking around behind or at other people or even at our earthly future. Our job now is to gain an eternal perspective of God, of what God has for us in eternity, and live like we belong to the kingdom. Our job is to embrace this. Our job is to quit worrying about the things around us that have no eternal bearing, that, that don't last, that are going to become a memory like Domitian. Our job is to hear from God, to follow God, to serve God, as if he is the God of eternity who sits on the throne that was described, who's worshipped by the four living creatures and the 24 elders and all the angels and eventually every creature that crawls on the face of the earth. That's the God we have to embrace. That's what they needed to hear desperately, and that's what we need to hear just as desperately. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this message. I love this passage because... We get a glimpse of the future, and, and we get a quick look into your throne room. And we get to see you on the throne and Jesus on the throne, and we get to see your power and majesty, the angels worshiping you, the 24 elders worshiping you, the, the creation itself worshiping you. I love this passage because it reminds me that that's the very place I will pass through one day. This is not my home. This is not my destiny. This is not where it ends. It ends with you in eternity in heaven. And Father, I pray that we can all embrace that. And that can, can be the guide that, that governs our life, that, that helps us know how to live. That we live as those who have another home. And, and we live as if those who belong to you and, and represent you. Father, I just pray that this passage would speak to all of us. It speaks for itself. And I pray that it would remind us and, and help us think clearly about you, help us to remember what the future holds. And I just ask that you bless us as we think about it.
and may it change our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.